the Curb Siders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let's know they were right. Hey, Paul, we're back. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's going really well. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, Stuart's not here tonight, Paul. I know that always leaves a, a huge hole in your heart. It's That could only be filled by Stuart. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on this show, we're going to talk all about BPH. But, Paul, before that, why don't you just tell them the general format of our show? Oh, so happy to. As always, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, we also get to know the guest out front. So if you want to get right to the heart of the episode, feel free to refer to the show notes for the timestamps. But but please don't do that. We have important and fun things to say. And what about this specific show, Paul? Uh, I think I think you were producing this one. So why don't you do the honors? Yeah, it's I'm I'm excited to do this one for a couple of reasons. I think it's a really common program problem that is under discussed and, and and probably under recognized. And it's weird. Like I think about this, I didn't see it a whole lot in residency for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's because it can sometimes be a sensitive topic or not. But now that I'm in practice, I feel like I see it all the time. So during my training, I probably didn't get a whole lot of exposure to it. Now I'm still trying to figure it out. So to have someone who actually knows what they're doing kind of help me along the way um, is fantastic. So I'm looking forward to, to talking with our friend, uh, Dr. Adam Reese. So Dr. Adam Reese is an associate professor of urology and the chief of urologic oncology at Temple University Hospital. Uh, he received his medical degree from Columbia and underwent residency training at the University of California in San Francisco. He then went on to complete a fellowship in urologic oncology at John Hopkins James Buchanan Brady Urologic Institute. That is a mouthful. <laughs> Dr. Reese's research interests include cancer staging, early detection and management of genitourinary malignancies, surveillance protocols for low-risk prostate cancer, and small renal masses. He's also interested in racial disparities and prostate cancer and other urologic malignancies, um, and a colleague and someone that I enjoy talking to very much and, and looking forward to talking to him on the show. And Paul, I think everyone can agree that this is a particularly good episode not to have a pun from Stuart, because I probably would have had to bleep it oh, out. God bless us. <laughs> the fates have smiled upon us. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. The first question we always ask our guests, can you give the audience a one-liner, kind of like you would do to describe a patient in the hospital about yourself and, and include something that you do outside the world of medicine? Sure, yeah. Thanks you uh, very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So uh, one-liner. So I guess I'm a uh, 39-year-old uh, father of two young boys. Uh, Unfortunately, most of my prior hobbies that I that I enjoyed have kind of been replaced by corralling my children and uh, charting an epic. But uh, uh, I, I enjoy uh, I enjoy participating in sports and watching sports outside of the hospital and just basically trying to relax in the minimal amount of free time that I have. I know what that's like. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah like epic is everyone's favorite hobby these days. It's, <laughs> it's just, the kids are loving it. I don't know about favorite, but uh, uh, common hobby. <laughs> Paul, should I ble should I bleep the name of the medical record just for effect? We've done that on every show so far. Where we, when people mention it, because Paul has such uh, distaste for for uh, electronic health records, but I'll leave it to you, Paul. Oh, it's it doesn't matter. Okay. I, at this it's point, four letter word, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think it offends more people than most four letter words. Um, <laughs> So it since it sounds like uh, your free time is at a premium, I'll still ask the question. Um, uh, can you tell me a book that you would recommend for other doctors to read? It doesn't even necessarily have to be medically related. It can be fiction, nonfiction, shoot the moon. But is there is there a book you would recommend for for folks to check out? Yeah, so books I can do because I've gotten quite into audiobooks, which I can do during the commute, so that's oh, uh, sure. time efficient. But um, uh, so I, you, I don't know if prior guests have brought this up, but uh, this guy Yuval Noah Harari wrote this book, Sapiens, which is very common. Um, that one was interesting, but actually the follow-up one to that is called Homo Deus, which is supposed to uh, – it kind of addresses the future of humanity and, and where we're kind of headed down the road. And uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean it, it – paint somewhat of a bleak picture of the future of humanity, but it's kind of eye-opening and uh, I found it interesting. And it was, there were some discussions of medicine because it touches on a lot of um, artificial intelligence 
and sort of machine algorithms. And he brings up the fact that um, uh, essentially what doctors do is very algorithmic. I mean, we basically take a history and we collect a lot of information and we process that data to come up with a diagnosis. Um, and there's really no reason why a intelligent machine couldn't do that as well, if not better than your average doctor. So it's a, a little foreboding in that uh, you know <laughs> we could be out of a job in a couple of years, but, uh, but it was kind of eye-opening and an interesting read, I thought. I think that one's come up before. Yeah, but I, I don't remember actually hearing about me being replaced. So <laughs> that's, that's... <laughs> I'll have to work on expanding my skill set. <laughs> Um, another question we always like to ask is, have you had any, um, I mean, we're, the reason we talk to all our guests and we're always like, you're, you're very successful. We've read your great CV for the audience, but can you tell them about something maybe that you struggled with along the way or, or a failure you had and, and how you sort of bounce back from that or what you learned from that failure? I mean, I guess the one that comes to mind most immediately is, um, it's a career related failure. I mean, I guess relatively early in my career, um, uh, you know, I, being a surgical subspecialty urology, a, a large component of my practice is surgically based. And, you know, you kind of leave training and you're like, well, I, I think I can do these surgeries and these procedures, but you've never really done them unsupervised before. So there's always that, that little bit of doubt. And, um, you know, at the beginning, you, you know, you get so many cases under your belt, you start to feel good. And then I, I remember I had a, um, you know, a reasonably bad complication uh, relatively early in my career. And it really kind of, you know, it shakes your confidence and you start to doubt yourself, you know, is this, is this something I really can be doing or, or perhaps am I not kind of, you know, up to par? Um, so I think it kind of made me sort of take a step back and, and sort of, uh, you know, look at myself and was this a fundamental problem or is this just, you know, in medicine, we all know complications happen and mistakes happen. Um, but it was, it, it was tough to get over because it kind of it sticks in your head, and the next time you do that procedure, and, and the next time, and the next time you think back, like, hey, you know, can I really do this? Um, but I, you know, I think I've kind of learned. You know, you work your way through those complications, and um, and and you do your best. And some things are unavoidable, and, and not really, you know, a fault of of you or, or anything that you did necessarily incorrectly. So, when you go through that, because we we don't we don't talk. You may even be the first surgeon we've had on the podcast. This and in medicine, I think. Sometimes it's obvious when you make a mistake and there's a complication, but it's usually less obvious because we give a medication and it's not a hundred percent. Like you know, I think with with a surgical procedure, the it's it's much easier to kind of feel the blame for that or to to see that something went wrong. Uh, how how do people generally handle that, or how do you just you talk to mentors? That, are people supportive of it, or is it like you're at an M and M and people are just like lighting you up? <laughs> Well, uh, unfortunately, it could be a little bit of both. I think, uh, you know, people are very understanding and very supportive. And, uh, you know, you talk with your mentors and they say, listen, you, you, you do enough surgeries or you do enough procedures or, or for you guys, you know, you see enough patients and, and complications will happen. I mean, it's, it's just inevitable. Um, I mean, there is a little bit of, uh, you know, I imagine M&M is similar in, in that I think the purpose of the M&M is supposed to be um, let others learn from your complications and, and are there systems-based issues that we can address to prevent this from happening in the future. Occasionally, I think it does become a little attack-minded where, you know, why did you do this? Oh, you should have done this differently. And and that is sort of, at least in my mind, counterproductive. But, um, but I think in general, I mean, 90 Eight percent of the uh, encounters I had after after this event and other complications have all been supportive. Um, so, but I mean, it, it's hard not to take things personally and feel like you're you're personally responsible for these things because um, you know, in a way, you are, even if it was an unavoidable complication. Um, right, but I think it's it's sometimes helpful, especially kind of early on. Not helpful. I'm trying to think of the right way to contextualize this, but it's you're just you're so ready to go right out of residency and i think even sort of in the later stages of residency where you start to feel like you know more than the people who are training you and you just to have i think it's probably good to have that hubris knocked out of you relatively early on like i just i feel like the residents and trainees can sometimes be fearless in a way that i am just not anymore because you you see how things can go south despite your best efforts or despite um trying to plan as well as you can so it's almost i don't say better to get that out of the way but i i feel like it's sort of helpful to to kind of reframe sort of every patient encounter, not to the point that hopefully it's debilitating, but at least in the way that you just, I think you tend to be a little bit more careful. Maybe I might be projecting yeah. too. 
what, what we see in our residents, again, this might be specific to surgery, but the, the junior residents know nothing. The mid-level <laughs> residents think that they are, are ready to go out and practice completely on their own. And then the chiefs, they come back and we give them a little bit of autonomy. And they're like, oh, this is, this is actually harder than I thought it was. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm not quite ready, but I got to go out and practice next year. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, just kind of the natural progression in probably in all fields of medicine. Sure. Well, with that, I think we should move in. I think we should move into the case, Paul. And uh, why don't you? Why don't you do the honors? Sure, I'd be happy to. I I can tell you where I got the name Kilgore Trout, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> that is a famous Vonnegut character. For those of who are wondering, half the times Adam, when I write these cases, I then forget where I got the clever names from. Uh, Kilgore Trout. <laughs> Actually, we have. I I got a shout out to this. Uh, I believe. Oh yeah, it's, this guy's great. It's, it's Joshua Shore. Is a uh, yeah. is a is a very faithful listener. He writes us emails that are always very enjoyable, and he, he's like he's been figuring out. Uh, he's been on to you, Paul, the whole time. He'll often be like, <laughs> I think one time you were, was it like philosophers or something? It was a bunch of like. It's I, usually I socialists or anarchists or sort of lefty <laughs> commentator. So it's it's my way of sort of being subversive in the podcast. But yeah, yeah. And he calls me out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, to Mr. Kilgore Trout. So this this gentleman, he's 63 years old. He's got a past history of diabetes on metformin monotherapy, CKD3, but not so bad. There were squirrely about the metformin. He has high blood pressure on HCTZ um, and tobacco use in the past. He, so he's coming to his primary care doctor's office for evaluation for urinary symptoms that have been going on for a while. Um Typically doesn't come to the office very often, usually doesn't like to complain too much, but, you know, comes to the office because it's become bothersome enough that he'd like to report it. So he's mentioning nocturia. He's urinating three times nightly. He has hesitancy when he when he does go to urinate and also post void dribbling when he's done. No burning with urination, no blood in the urine, no back pain, no fevers, no chills. He actually, he's still working. God bless him. He's driving a garbage truck. Um, but with the urinary urgency that happens during the day, it's starting to get a little bit embarrassing for him. He's actually starting to carry a bottle with him, too, so that sometimes we'll have to sort of leave his route and just sort of find a quiet alley to actually urinate. And then it's never feels like he's actually sort of fully done the job. So it's starting to really impact his life, and he's coming to us for help. So before we get into the workup or the examination or sort of all this stuff, I think why don't we, why don't we start very basic since the, the topic of this episode for anyone who actually looked at the title is benign prostatic hyperplasia. Can you just talk us through sort of fundamentally what that is and maybe how it's different from uh, prostatic hypertrophy. The terminology here can get a little bit tricky if you want to be a hundred percent correct. So I, I mean, I think um, the old or historical term was benign prostatic hypertrophy, but but technically, from a pathologist's perspective, it's a it's a hyperplasia and not a hypertrophy. So I, I'm sure if there are pathologists listening, they can correct me. But hyperplasia is essentially a, a proliferation or an increase in the in the number of cells, whereas hypertrophy is an increase in the the size of the individual cells. And so pathologically, the process here is actually a benign prostatic hyperplasia or increased proliferation of cells that specifically occurs in um, what's called the transition zone of the prostate that, that you know, leads to these urinary symptoms. Um, I think the, the other thing that's potentially important to figure out is, or, or at least to clarify, is that many uh, physicians will say, oh, th this patient has BPH symptoms. And uh, really what we like to call it these days is he basically has lower urinary tract symptoms, which could be due to a number of different issues. So certainly, you know, in this gentleman in his age group, uh, BPH is a very, very common cause of lower urinary tract symptoms, but there are numerous other causes as well. So, um, you know, at least in urology, once we've sort of done the workup and we say, okay, we think these urinary symptoms are due to BPH, we would call that lower urinary tract symptoms or LUTs due to BPH, um, just to be kind of correct with the terminology. Gotcha. And when, just in some of the reading and sort of preparation for the show, um, sort of a lot of the papers I've looked at and the ways that people talk about conceptualizing it is actually even dividing the lunary, lower urinary tract symptoms into this either sort of obstructive voiding and then versus bladder storage symptoms. Is that, is that how you think about that? And in, in which way, how is that useful? Yeah, so I, th I actually think that's that's very helpful for a number of reasons. Um, so, you know, if we're talking about obstructive or voiding symptoms versus storage or irritative symptoms, you can basically break it down where your your obstructive or your voiding symptoms are things like a weak stream, straining to void, hesitancy, intermittency of the urinary stream. Um, a feeling of, of incomplete emptying, post-void dribbling, those sorts of things would be what we would classify as obstructive or voiding symptoms. Um, the, the storage or the irritative symptoms are, are more along the lines of urinary frequency, 
urgency. Uh, in severe cases, men will report or uh, urge urinary incontinence or nocturia. So those are kind of your, your classic storage or irritative symptoms. Um, I think it can be helpful in two ways. Uh, the relative preponderance of sort of the, the irritative versus the obstructive symptoms can kind of help you generate your diagnosis and, and um, you know, is this due to BPH or potentially is this more an overactive bladder picture or some other process that, that's leading to these symptoms? Um, and we can talk about this in a little more detail later, but then it can also kind of help tailor your your medical treatment regimen where um, there are some medications that potentially are a little more helpful for the obstructive symptoms and others that are uh, potentially more beneficial for the storage or the irritative symptoms. Uh, many urologists uh, and many urology practices, they do have their patients fill out um, the, the standard questionnaire, questionnaire here is what's called the International Prostate Symptom Score or the IPSS questionnaire. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you want me to touch base a little bit on that um, IPSS questionnaire and and sure. what it's useful it, for? It's, or? Yeah, I mean, does how does it does it basically? Uh, yeah, tell us what's on there. I mean, does it does it include the kind kind of symptoms that you were just talking about with the storage and the obstructive symptoms? Yeah, I mean, so it's basically a, a validated questionnaire that that characterizes the severity of urinary symptoms. Um, there's seven questions, each of which is scored from zero to five, so a maximum score would be 35. Um, and it it basically touches on all these things we talked about. It touches on uh, incomplete emptying, urinary frequency, intermittency, urgency, weak stream, straining, nocturia. Um, my one qualm with it is I, I do think it would be kind of nice if they had you know, maybe questions one through four were the, the irritative symptoms and the, uh, you know, right. three th or five through seven were the obstructive symptoms. So you could kind of break down the two. Um, and you can do that, but it, you actually have to, you know, read each question and kind of tally it up as, oh, this is more obstructive and this is more irritative. Um, so that, that's potentially one deficiency of it. But um, basically, once you tally up those scores, it's anything higher than 20 would be considered severe urinary symptoms. Anything between eight and 19 is moderate and anything less than eight is considered mild. Um, and for me in practice, probably the most important part of the questionnaire is after those seven questions, there's another question that says, if you had to live the rest of your life with your urinary condition exactly the way it is now, how would you feel about that? And it's basically, you know, I would be delighted or I would be absolutely miserable. So, you know, I'll see some people where, their score is relatively high. Maybe they have a score of 25, but it says if you were to live the rest of your life like this, how would you feel? And they say, I'd be just fine. Um, and for those people, maybe maybe they don't need any treatment at all. You know, they, they have to pee frequently, but it doesn't bother them. Not, nothing's, you know, there's no need to intervene on that. Um, so, uh, you know, I think probably for me, the most important part is basically how bothered are you by these symptoms? So, and I, I think particularly in, in men in this particular age range, I mean, the, the the temptations kind of go right for uh, BPH as a cause of the lower urinary tract symptoms. But when you're like, for, for instance, for, for Mr. Trout, who seems to have a couple of other uh, comorbidities that might be contributory, what, what details as you're sort of getting the history from the patient are, are especially important? Yeah. So um, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, uh, in this gentleman, a 63 year old man coming in with these symptoms, uh, you know, your most likely diagnosis is going to be BPH, but there are, other things that you need to consider. So, um, I mean, just in general, and this is going to be the the obvious statement of the evening. But um, you know, <laughs> it's in, kind in, of in general, <laughs> yeah. When you're when you're evaluating your lower urinary tract symptoms, the first thing you need to think is you know male or female, and uh, you know because women can have very similar urinary symptoms. Uh, that kind of takes BPH off the table. Um, <laughs> sure, but uh, but but they can manifest with very similar symptoms. It's it's less common for women to have the obstructive symptoms. Um, you know, the the irritative symptoms, things like frequency and and uh, urgency. Uh, those are very common. Uh, the obstructive symptoms, like you know, straining to void, et cetera, those are less common in women. Um, I guess the next thing I look at, so you know, if, if we have a man with these symptoms, um, age is obviously very important. So uh, BPH extremely common as men get older, uh, and so I guess in my practice, I would say in general, it's around you know the early to mid fifties and certainly into the sixties where I, I see a ton of BPH. Um, not to say it can't happen at a younger age, but if, you know, if I have a, a 25 year old guy that comes in with these type of symptoms, uh, it, pretty unlikely that, that BPH is, is the main cause of his symptoms. Um, and then I do kind of tease out, you know, if, um, 
if they're really only complaining of, of irritative symptoms, uh, they have no obstructive symptoms whatsoever, maybe they're a younger guy, I, I start to think maybe a little bit less that the prostate is a problem and maybe this is more bladder pathology, something like overactive bladder. Um, but you know, none of these are, um, uh, this is not an exact science. I mean, this is where a little bit of the, the art of medicine where we're kind of trying to tease things out from the history. Sure. And I guess in this patient's case, who's on a thiazide and who's also diabetic, like how, how commonly do you see in your practice or do you just sort of see in general for someone where if you just stop the thiazide or maybe better control their diabetes, you're actually fixing their symptoms. Like it sounds like maybe not the case for Mr. Trout, but I can imagine you might see a lot of other patients. Well, so as a urologist, I'm always reluctant to undo a sure. uh, primary care doctor's work and tell them to stop their diuretics. So, um, but I, <laughs> you know, I certainly will. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll get the history. Oh, you know, uh, my doc started me on this water pill, and, and the urinary symptoms got much worse. And then, you know, I'll say, hey, why don't you go back and and tell your doctor that, you know, we think that this diuretic may be contributing. And um, you know, I do see improvement from that, or or uh, you know, a, a modification of medications. Um, Diabetes, certainly poorly controlled diabetes can, can exacerbate the symptoms. And, um, and, you know, we do see some improvement if you can you know, improve glycemic control uh, in these patients. Um, but it's really, I think, you know, what we're getting at is it's, it's rarely one thing. It's typically a constellation of symptoms. I mean, maybe right. it's, um, you know, maybe it's medications, maybe it's a little bit of bladder overactivity, the, the enlarged prostate is not helping things. So it's sort of a, a you know, a constellation of, of underlying pathology that's leading to these symptoms that we're seeing. Can you, can we talk a little bit about the digital rectal exam? I, I feel like we, we just, getting right to it. <laughs> we just got to get right to it. I, I mean, like on exam, yeah. I, other than that, anything else on exam, but, but like, I, I feel like as primary care doctors, you d even, even when you do them, um, I, I mean, it's not like you're doing them on every patient and, uh, I don't know what I'm feeling. I mean, I think, you know, like, obviously <laughs> I think if someone had like a rock hard prostate, I'd be like, okay, that's, and, and I'm like, sure. That's it feels, kind of funny. <laughs> feels big, feels a little bit smooth, symmetrical, like, but is it, uh, yeah. I mean, is there a lot, is there a lot that we should be feeling? Yeah. So I, I will say, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I mean, I, I remember from, you know, essentially the duration of medical school, some preceptor would say, Oh, do a rectal exam. Can you feel the prostate? And I was like, Oh yeah, I can, I can feel it. It's big. And, um, you know, I, I guess at this point in my career, I've done enough digital rectal examinations that I, I do think I can get some information from the digital rectal exam. I will say it is it is by no means a perfect test. Um, there have been a number of studies in urology that people love to quote where they basically have a bunch of, uh, you know, seasoned urologists do digital rectal exams, and then they get some sort of imaging modality to measure the actual size of the prostate. And there's very poor correlation between the estimated size on rectal exam and the actual size on imaging. Um but I do get a sense – I mean basically what I'm feeling for when I do a rectal exam is basically just really big or not really big. And right. Okay. Once you do enough, you can kind of feel, oh, this is really big. And then you start to think, hey, you know, maybe BPH is what's going on here. Um, and then the other reason that it can be helpful, I mean, you know, prostate cancer screening is a whole other can of worms that we could we can get to if, if there's interest in that. But, um, but I mean occasionally you will do this and you will feel you know, what you described, you know, a rock-hard nodule on the prostate and – and that's something you're going to want to know about. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can entirely uh, exempt you from doing the digital rectal exam, <laughs> but it's also not the most important yeah. test in the world. No, that's that's not what I was asking for. So I think so I think like setting a low bar for myself and, and our colleagues, it sounds like it's maybe the things to look for are big or big or not big. And is there a rock hard asymmetric nodule on there? I mean, that's basically what I look for. So that, that, uh, yeah. that's, that's and, sufficient. Yeah. And, and then I guess the other thing um, with prostate, like prostatitis, like you've, if, if it's if it's very tender, I guess that could tip you off too. Um, I can't say that I've like made the diagnosis of prostatitis by like ex insanely painful palpation of the prostate. But is that is that something that actually happens? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so what you're describing would basically be an acute prostatitis and a patient with acute prostatitis. They, they're going to have other symptoms that would tee you off on that. I mean, th those patients are normally, um, 
uh, febrile, systemically ill in some way. They don't, you know, they're not looking good when they walk into your office. And then you do a rectal exam and they have an exquisitely tender prostate. You know, they're going to have a, a, a leukocytosis. They're, they're not going to look like your sort of guy who comes in that's just a little bit bothered by, by peeing frequently. Um, there's also chronic prostatitis, which is a, I mean, even as a urologist, that's a very difficult diagnosis to make. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, what you're describing is acute prostatitis. I don't think you would see that commonly okay. in your office. And if you did, yeah. I, I think there are some other signs that would key you off on that. Got it. Okay. That's that's all very helpful. Yeah. See, I told you, low bar for, for <laughs> improving my practice is a low bar. <laughs> no, Urology is not that hard. So. <laughs> like, Kind of like with learners with the, the fundoscopic exam. Like I just ask them to pretend to make the effort. Like if they just look in the back of the eye and go, oh, like, you know, just pretend like you're seeing or feeling something, then I, I think you're still ahead of the curve. It, it, the, the more you do, you do get better at it. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> Any other uh, physical exam elements that are, are of particular import? So Matt was excited about the prostate exam. Is there anything else that um, you really sort of honed in on as someone who's having lower urinary tract symptoms? I'll typically do, you know, feel the suprapubic region. Very rarely you can feel a palpable bladder. I mean, sure. it's not that often that we see it. But if, if you do feel that, that's not great. And that's something you'd want to know about. Um, if you have a bladder scanner in your office, that will also give you give you that answer in terms of a post-void residual. But um, that's really the, you know, the other physical exam finding that I would check for in a, in a guy with BPH or lower urinary tract symptoms that we think are due to BPH. And I, I do, if, if you don't mind, Wado, I do want to actually get back to the history. If I could just ask you, so Mr. Trout, I mean, volunteered a ton of stuff and did, gave us a better history than I ordinarily would have gotten. But would you mind sort of talking through what, like, you know, if someone comes in and says, well, I'm, I'm just peeing more at night. Like, what, what kind of follow-up questions do you ask? Would you mind just sort of modeling what that conversation looks like and what, what questions you think are important to ask about? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, I guess so. If if his only complaint was nocturia and he hadn't offered up all that other stuff and, and say that was his main complaint, um, sometimes there are some very easy lifestyle fixes, right? So uh, nocturia is, is a very common bothersome problem. And sometimes you say, okay, you know, what's your normal nighttime routine? Okay, well, you know, I have dinner at six o'clock. And what time do you go to bed? I go to bed at 10 o'clock. And then what do you do between six and 10? Well, I drink three or four beers and I watch TV and then I fall asleep on the couch and then I go to bed. I said, well, you know, maybe if you cut back on the, the beer intake between, you know, 6 p.m. and 10 p.m., that might fix your nocturia. And, and sure enough, you know, that can do the trick. Um, right. Or things as simple as, um, hey, listen, you know, before you go to bed for the evening, just make sure you swing by the restroom and, and empty your bladder. So you start the night with a with an empty bladder um, and that, that can, you know, help things like nocturia. Um, so there are, I think, you know, some lifestyle modifications that can really make a big difference before you just jump to, you know, some sort of medical therapy. Um, but then, you know, I guess get to get back to your question, if, if he was complaining of nocturia, I mean, I would ask about these other symptoms that we've covered. Um, you know, do you have daytime urinary frequency? Uh, do you have urgency uh, with urination? Do you have a hard time postponing urination? Um, you know, do you feel like you need to strain to void? Do you feel like you empty completely when you're done voiding? Um, uh, you know, do you have a weak or strong stream when you're urinating? Uh, and then basically, you know, as as they say yes or no to these questions, I'm kind of trying to, um, you know, paint a picture in my head of, of what I think is going on. Um, you know, you also want to ask about the duration of these things. Is this a, a you know, relatively chronic process that's been progressing over months and months or years? Or is this sort of an acute onset? Um, and certainly, you know, if they, if they say this is an acute onset thing, that, that's going to argue against the BPH and argue in favor of, of something else going on. I think we got a lot about the history, Paul. Do, do you want to move on to talking about what the basic labs are? Because, Adam, this, this has always been something that's been a little bit confusing to me. I, I know what I've done, but... I just want to see, like, what what basic labs do you think most urologists would get or or recommend for a patient that's coming in with lower urinary tract symptoms, and uh, kind of just like like our patient, Mr. Kilgore Trout here, with, with with these type of symptoms, what what are the basic tests that we need to get, if any? Yes, I'd say there's universal agreement that a urinalysis should be checked uh, for a patient like this. I mean, mainly you're looking for, is this a urinary tract infection that's potentially explaining these symptoms? Um, 
Again, a lot of that you're going to be able to get from the history. I mean, if this gentleman's been having these symptoms for months and months and they've been kind of chronic, it's, you know, it's unlikely that there's an acute cystitis that's causing this, but it's, um, you know, it's something that should be ruled out. Um, the other thing that's important to look for on the urinalysis is blood um, because, you know, uh, blood can be due to BPH, but there can be a host of other things that can cause blood in the urine. Uh, and so, you know, if that's there, that's something that you'd want to know about and probably send that patient to see urology. Right. Right. What about, uh, I guess, I guess you would check a creatinine as well Is that, and, and, and then of course we, we want to ask you about, uh, about P, uh, diagnostic P, PSA and, and someone that's coming in with urine, lower urinary tract symptoms. So believe it or not, um, creatinine is actually somewhat controversial. So um, at least the American Urological Association guidelines say you don't need to check a creatinine in the sort of run-of-the-mill patient coming in with, with lower urinary tract symptoms and, and presumed BPH. Um, there are some European guidelines that uh, argue the opposite, that, that creatinine should be checked. Um, I don't routinely check it in, in sort of just your your average patient coming in with, with these type of symptoms. Um you know, certainly if I were concerned for urinary retention, uh, you know, I didn't think they were emptying their bladder well, say they had, or if they had had an ultrasound that showed hydronephrosis, uh, in that setting, I would definitely be sure to check it. But I'm not sure it needs to be done routinely for the average patient. Um, and then you asked about PSA. So, uh, you know, PSA, you know, irrespective of screening for prostate cancer, it actually can be helpful when you're trying to work up BPH. And, and the main reason is it can, it can kind of act as a surrogate for prostate volume or prostate size. Um, so as I think most people are familiar, I mean, PSA is an imperfect test for checking for prostate cancer. And the main reason is that BPH could also cause your PSA to be elevated. Um, but in this setting, that can actually be helpful. So, you know, if I see a 65-year-old guy and he has urinary symptoms and then I check a PSA and it's 0.2, I, I start to wonder, um, you know, are these symptoms really due to BPH? But if I check the PSA and his PSA is, you know, two and a half or three, then that's, you know, that's consistent with um, what your PSA would be for a, an enlarged prostate that would cause yeah. these types of urinary symptoms. So, it, you know, it can be helpful from that perspective. Can I ask a stupid <laughs> fundamental basic question I should know the answer to? But yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> that's, no, that's kind of my thing. Um, okay. So with the the PSA often reported out is also the percent free PSA. What am I what am I to do with that? Um, like what? It, how is that? How is that used? I guess sort of diagnostically. Yeah, how is that helpful? Yes, yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. I actually think that's a very underutilized test, and, and it should be used more. So um, percent free PSA is basically meant to help differentiate. PSA elevation due to cancer from PSA elevation due to BPH. And so it's it's um, a little confusing because it's basically the opposite of total PSA level. So um, a high PSA argues that cancer may be present, but a low percent free PSA argues in favor of cancer. Um, so if your PSA is somewhat elevated, but you have a high percent free PSA, and typically, you know, 20% or above would be considered relatively high, that argues that it's less likely that there's cancer present, and it's more likely that that PSA elevation may be due to BPH. Um, so certainly, if you have a guy with lower urinary tract symptoms, the PSA is maybe a little bit high, uh, but they also have a high percent free PSA, uh, that would argue that, that BPH is the cause of these symptoms. Adam, I just want to try to recap here. It sounds like with the history, we're just mainly asking about obstructive symptoms and irritative symptoms uh, or storage symptoms, as we might call them. Then we talked about some of the things like coffee and beer and, you know, are they drinking a ton before bedtime and uh, medications. And then on the prostate, we're going to do a prostate exam on all these patients with lower urinary tract symptoms if we're suspecting BPH. And we're going to try to say, is the prostate big, really big, or is it not that big? Are there any hard nodules on there? And um, we oh, and we also talked about if if we have it available, we can have them fill out the IPSS score because um, that could kind of take away take a lot of the questions off the table for us. And then for the for the lab workup, we're gonna definitely get a urinalysis. We're gonna we're gonna pay attention. Is there any blood there? And we can consider getting a PSA, which might help us determine the prostate volume, uh, which can kind of help us confirm the diagnosis. 
and the free PSA, if that's low, if the pros- if the total PSA is high but the free per- percent free PSA is low, then we're thinking, uh-oh, this could be prostate cancer. Yeah, that's all correct. Okay. Paul, did you want to go on or are we missing anything before we move on to the next part of the case? No, I, I think we're ready to move on to maybe actual management, I think. Okay. So let's let's pretend for a second that we are actually able to cow our internal medicine resident into doing a prostate exam, and then they they thought they did the usual thing. Well, maybe it was kind of big, um, but they didn't appreciate any discrete nodules or anything scary at all. Um, you're you're able to coerce them into to checking a PSA that actually comes back relatively normal. The creatinine is not um, is not is at his baseline. So he, as a reminder, he has CKD three, but it's unchanged. His urinalysis is unremarkable, so no blood at all. Um, and so the patient is bothered enough by his symptoms um, and maybe has a high enough IPSS score that he's probably merits treatment. And so I guess for Mr. Trout specifically, and then maybe more broadly, so what is your what is kind of your overall approach to medical therapy, understanding it's a gigantic question? Yeah, so, uh, you know, if, I, if I've taken the history and I have all these physical exam findings and I've kind of come down on you know, BPH being the most likely diagnosis here, um, uh, the standard initial therapy is going to be uh, alpha blocker therapy, of which there are a number of, of various alpha blockers to choose from. Um, uh, you know, the classic ones here are uh, terazosin, doxazosin, tamsulosin, sildosin. Um, they're all effective. Um, uh, I tend to use tamsulosin uh, just as an initial go-to. It, it, it's relatively inexpensive and, and has some beneficial side effect profiles, uh, but that's typically my, my first line medical therapy for BPH. How do you tailor a patient's expectations when they take that? What, what, what sort of, and what sort of side effects might you tell them to look out for? How, how long is the typical trial? Because I understand we, we all hope these meds work, but you know, how long does, yeah. Can you tell us some of the limitations and how, how that sounds when you talk to a patient about it? Yeah, I mean, so one of the nice things about alpha blockers for BPH um, is that they work relatively quickly. So, you know, most people are going to see a benefit within a week or so if it's going to work. Um, the other class of medicines that, uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes here are the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And those have a much slower uh, onset of action or, or a much longer time before a patient's going to potentially see benefit. Uh, they, it's on the order of months before a patient may see a benefit from a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So I'll tell the patient, you know, um, you should see a benefit with these alpha blockers relatively quickly. Um, most are dosed once daily. Uh, we'll typically tell them to take take it in the evening. Um, and that's because one of the most common side effects of, of alpha blocker therapy is orthostatic hypotension. Um, so there is some benefit. I mean, if you're going to have that, you know, have, have it in the evening or the nighttime when, you, when you're sleeping. Um, the other thing that I hear a lot of complaints about with alpha blockers is it can interfere with a man's ejaculatory function. So oftentimes they'll report decreased ejaculate volume or, or no ejaculate whatsoever. Um, which it's kind of a patient preference thing. There's some patients that doesn't bother them. For some patients, that's a really big deal. So um, those are probably the most common adverse effects or side effects that I see from the from the, that class of medications. And I see, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up, because I've seen it on, I think, every test that I've ever taken for internal medicine about floppy iris syndrome. Is that <laughs> is that something you've actually ever seen in practice? Is that something we should be terrified about? Or is there any sort of counseling we should do in regards to that? Yes. I mean, I, I can't say I've seen it, but I have a, a fairly good friend who's an ophthalmologist, and he says that the iris on tamsulosin is, is a disaster for them. So uh, <laughs> I, I think I think it's a real thing. I, I don't know what to do about it besides maybe just, you know, make sure your ophthalmologist knows that you take this. Uh, so it's <laughs> it's definitely a real thing. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not my problem to deal with, I guess. <laughs> so <laughs> Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in terms of the alpha blockers, you mentioned they're selective and non-selective, and the selective being the, the tamsulosin or the psilocin, and the non-selective being terazosin, doxazosin, and alphazosin. Uh, is there a reason why you might choose a selective over a non-selective? Like, did, Are there any sort of specific indications that you choose one broad class over the other? Yeah, so I, the selective ones are less likely to cause orthostasis, so, so that's a benefit. Um the other thing is, you know, we see a lot of erectile dysfunction as well. Uh, and for men that are on um, 
uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors for erectile dysfunction that can interact with the non-selective alpha blockers and cause relatively serious hypotension, uh, whereas the more selective alpha blockers like tamsulosin, they, they don't have that interaction. So, um, you know, if you had somebody that was on sildenafil for erectile dysfunction, you would want him to be on a, a selective alpha blocker. So when do you bring the patients back after you said they might they might notice symptom relief with an alpha blocker in about a week or so? Uh, when do you bring them back? And what if they say, you know, Doc, I'm not really it's not it's not really working for me. Um, and what would be the next step? Um, yeah, so, you know, I'll typically, you know, I'll start them on a medication. I'll typically make some lifestyle modification suggestions. Um I mean, even though the medication works relatively quickly, I typically don't have them come back for another two or three months. Uh, you know, I tailor it somewhat based on their degree of bother. I mean, if somebody's just really miserable, I'll, I'll get them back relatively quickly. Whereas if they, you know, they're just kind of, kind of bothered, uh, you know, I'll see them back in a couple months. Um, you know, if they come back at that point, they say, listen, I, you know, I've been on this alpha blocker therapy for X number of months and I'm really not seeing much improvement. Um, then that's when I kind of tease out a little bit more of the um, obstructive versus irritative symptoms because um, so again we mentioned earlier that that many women have very similar symptoms um, in terms of urinary frequency urgency etc and that's presumably due to overactive bladder that can happen in men almost as commonly. Um, so if I've kind of said, okay, well, I've taken the prostate off the table by by giving him tamsulosin, the symptoms aren't really better. And if these are primarily things like urinary urgency, nocturia, frequency, urge incontinence, then sometimes I'll add on an anticholinergic medication, which is kind of our, our go-to class of medications for overactive bladder. Um, Conversely, if, if they have primarily symptoms such as um, weak stream, incomplete emptying, straining to void, uh, you know, maybe I've done my rectal exam and I feel like they have a large prostate and their PSA is kind of high and I'm thinking more along the lines of BPH, that's when I'll add on a, a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, um, which are medications like um, uh, finasteride and dutasteride. I keep seeing things about like bladder training. Um, and I know for I know definitely for women with urge incontinence, bladder bladder training or pelvic physical therapy is a big thing. For for men who are having some symptoms, is is are there like Kegel exercises or pelvic PT? Is that at any any part of your repertoire as a urologist? Uh, so I think that's gaining in popularity, and I, and I do think there's a large benefit to it. It, it. it hasn't been, I think, maybe a standard part of urologic practice, um, certainly for, for stress incontinence um, in women or, you know, in men after radical prostatectomy, it can be hugely beneficial. Um, but I do think, you know, there's, there's um, sort of less convincing evidence that it can be beneficial for these types of symptoms as well. Um, so. You know, I think if you ask me this question five or ten years down the road, we might have much more convincing data to to show the I benefit see. of it. Uh, but I think we're maybe maybe not quite there at this point. And the non the non pharmacologic stuff or lifestyle stuff that you talked about already, um, you I think you said it was mainly like well, can you repeat the list? I, I think we can hear it more than once on the show. It'd be it'd be useful. Yeah. So I you know specifically for uh, the the. More irritative complaints, so you know, frequency, urgency, nocturia. Um, you know, there are some notorious bladder irritants that that exacerbate those symptoms, and and you know, the most common ones are caffeine, um, uh, those energy drinks. You know, people that drink, I drink five Red Bulls a day, um, <laughs> uh, and alcohol. So, you know, if you take a history, people say, oh, I drink five cups of coffee a day and I, I'm peeing very frequently. Well, you know, maybe, maybe cut back on your caffeine and take a little bit and, and you can see some improvement there. Um, if the complaints are primarily voiding in the, uh, voiding at night or, or nocturia, um, you know, we mentioned that we'll tell them to, you know, do most of your fluid drinking during the day. And in the several hours before you go to bed, try to cut back on your fluid intake and then just make sure that you empty your bladder right before you get in bed for the evening. Um, and then for men that have a, uh, more obstructive symptoms, weak stream, and specifically a sensation of, of incomplete emptying, uh, sometimes what you can do for them is tell them to double void. So you tell them, you know, when you, when you urinate and the stream of urine stops, 
wait maybe 10 or 15 seconds and try and void again. And they'll find that that second time they can oftentimes empty out quite a bit more urine, which can alleviate that, that sensation of incomplete bladder emptying. Okay. Got it. All right. So with, with our, with our patient here, Paul, you want to bring us to this case and maybe we can talk about a couple scenarios and try to figure out, you know, who needs dual therapy and why don't don't you bring us, bring us home here, Paul? I think we're coming to the end. I think so. Yeah. so for Mr. Trout, we do start him on the tamsulosin because we're, we're very good doctors. And then two months, he's, he remains exactly the same. His, there's no improvement in his IPSS score. And then dutasteride is added to his regimen, and his symptoms remain still persistent, still bothersome. When, when should we, as surgical internal medicine doctors, start thinking about referring patients to urology? And then what, what, what would you do next for this particular patient? Uh, well, I, I guess I, first I would applaud you because you've already done more than ninety um, percent of the referrals that, that, that I get. So, um, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I I certainly think uh, urinary symptoms refractory to medical therapy is is clearly a reason to send to urology. Uh, to be honest, I would be fine if you had sent him after he came back and on the the alpha blocker therapy, his symptoms weren't better. Uh, I mean, it would even be appropriate to to send him at that point because then. You know, like I said, sometimes we'll give a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. Sometimes we'll give other therapies. Um, but certainly if, if their symptoms are refractory to combination therapy, then it, then it definitely makes sense. Um, I mean, I think the other reasons that really we would want to see the patient, I mentioned hematuria. Uh, those patients really probably should be seen by a urologist just to rule out, you know, significant pathology, um, uh, a bladder tumor, a bladder stone, which is something we'd want to deal with. Um, you know, when you did your thorough rectal examination, certainly if you if you felt that big nodule on the rectal exam or if the PSA were high, that that's something we would want to see. Um, uh, recurrent urinary tract infections. Sometimes you'll see men that, you know, they've, they've had several UTIs. Uh, that can often be from incomplete bladder emptying, which which can be caused by BPH. So, so that's something that we would want to see. Um, and I think the other thing to think about is anybody with any significant neurological pathology. So, uh, you know, spinal cord injury or, um, you know, various neuromuscular disorders, those can also uh, manifest as, as urinary symptoms and sometimes require urodynamics and other testing that, that probably should be done by a urologist. We mentioned that that our patient, Mr. Trout, was on a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, and that, that was dutasteride. That, so that, my, in my understanding, that's more for patients with like obstructive symptoms. So this would be a patient with, like, uh, if we were going by our rectal exam, we thought they had a large prostate or their PSA was elevated. We thought they had, they had a large prostate. Based on that, we put them on a five alpha reductase inhibitor. How do you how long do you tell the patient before that that's probably going to start working? And uh, how do you counsel them about some of the side effects? Because I know this one has you know some side effects that could be more worrisome to to patients. Yeah, so that one it's important to tell them that they're not going to see a benefit right away. Um, I will say, you know, if it's going to work, most people will start to see some improvement in about a month, uh, but they will see progressive improvement after that. And it's really, you know, it's on the order of several months before I think it has its maximum effect. Um, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors actually work by by physically shrinking the size of the prostate uh, through hormonal manipulation, and, and that process takes a period of time. Um, so... You know, I, I have seen some patients say, hey, listen, I, I took this for two weeks. I didn't see any benefit. I stopped it. I threw it in the trash. And, and so, <laughs> you know, you just need to tell them, just, you know, stick with it. Bear, bear with us for a while here. Um, side effects from that. Um, so that can cause a, a little bit more uh, erectile dysfunction, uh, sexual complaints of that nature. Um it can actually cause gynecomastia in men, which which many men find very bothersome, and, and we see that not infrequently. Um, so those are probably the most the most common complaints I see with that medication. And so it's you know I'll counsel patients ahead of time when I'm starting them that these are things that, that may happen and to watch out for. Um, and probably the only other I think important thing from a urologist perspective is um, five alpha reductase inhibitors. So so. Dutasteride and finasteride, those will artificially lower your PSA value by about 50%. So if you are 
you know, screening for prostate cancer with PSA, you need to adjust for the use of that medication and typically will just double the PSA value. So if a guy has been on finasteride and you get a PSA of four, that's really a PSA of eight. Um, and, and I do worry that sometimes prostate cancers are missed potentially because we get these PSA values and we don't realize that they're being artificially reduced by the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. Yeah, I saw that listed as a possible class effect is an increased risk of high-grade cancer. I was wondering if that's because just you're missing it in the early stages, or is there a different mechanism that that might be a possibility? Yeah, so this has been a, a huge controversy in urology for years and years and years. And it um, it, it basically was started with uh, something called a prostate cancer prevention trial, where they were basically giving finasteride to see if that could prevent prostate cancer. And the, the initial analysis found that the overall rate of prostate cancer decreased, but the likelihood of high-grade prostate cancer actually increased. And so there was that's where that concern came from. I mean, I think to make a long story short, we think that that's sort of a, a statistical phenomenon and has something to do with um, prostate biopsy techniques and, and the likelihood of a biopsy being positive. And so that's – I would not be concerned about that. There does not appear to be a clinically significant increase in the risk of high-grade high prostate cancer. And that study that I mentioned, they followed those patients for, for many years now, and there's not an increased rate of prostate cancer death or any adverse prostate cancer outcomes in the group that was on the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Okay. And I guess while we're on this class, I think my last question um, is, is there any circumstances where you would reach for this as initial therapy? Like if the PSA was a little bit up or you thought there was some uh, prostatomegaly, is there a circumstance where you would start with a finasteride or tasteride, or is it typically start with the alpha blockers? So I think you could make an argument to start with both together. So, you know, if you have very severe urinary symptoms, it wouldn't be unreasonable to start with an alpha blocker and a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, especially if you had some uh, uh, concrete evidence that the prostate was big. So studies have shown that for prostates greater than about 30 to 40 grams, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors are beneficial. So, you know, maybe your patient had a pelvic ultrasound and they measured the size of the prostate or they had a, a CAT scan or an MRI for other reasons where you could actually get a size of the prostate. That would be a good reason to potentially start both. Um, it's relatively rare that if I'm just going to start one medication that I would start a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor before an alpha blocker. Um, sometimes, if you know, I'll start a patient on an alpha blocker and they can't tolerate it because of side effects for whatever reason, and then I'll put them just on a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, but it's pretty rare that I would go, uh, my initial therapy would be 5-alpha reductase inhibitor monotherapy. And then I guess lastly, or maybe not lastly, but at the the dream, um, I guess if you had just amazing Cadillac insurance and were able to actually have the phosphodiesterase inhibitors as, as treatment for uh, lower urinary tract symptoms, like how, when would be a circumstance where you would reach for Tadalafil as opposed to any of the other agents? <laughs> um, rarely to never, uh, I guess a large part of that reason is because I know I'm going to get like seven insurance approval requests and I'm going <laughs> to be on the phone for, for hours trying to, to hammer that through. Um, but I, you know, so I think if you have relatively mild urinary symptoms and somebody uh, who also has erectile dysfunction, you can treat both with specifically Tadalafil. That's the one that has an indication for BPH symptoms. Um, at least in my clinical experience, and I, what most of the data shows is that it has a relatively modest effect at treating the lower urinary tract symptoms. So if you have somebody who's really bothered by their, their urinary symptoms, I think the other therapies that we talked about are more effective. Um, but, you know, in that unique circumstance, if they want to kind of treat both with one pill and their symptoms aren't that bad, I think it can be beneficial. Got it. All right. So one of the things I came across, uh, yeah, so I, I thought it was prostate milking, but apparently it was urethral milking. Thank you for correcting me, Paul. So uh, it says, it says the urologist may explain how to perform urethral milking for men with post-micturition dribbling. Strong recommendation. This is on uh, Dynamed Plus. Can you, can you tell me, uh, Adam, is that something that you strongly recommend to patients? Well, if, it's, if it's a strong recommendation, it has to be true, right? But, um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, that actually can work. I, you know, the, the, anatomically, the male urethra is long, uh, mm -hmm. and there's quite a bit of urethra between the uh, urethral sphincter and the urethral meatus. So sometimes it is just a matter of, you know, there's some urine that's, that's stuck in the urethra, and if you just you know, shake the penis or, or I guess you can call it milking the urethra, uh, you'll get that out and that'll, that'll get rid of that symptom. So 
Yes, strongly advise. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> yes. I I told you this this is about practical tips. So yeah. Uh, the other question uh, I came across this. Uh, apparently, people are using desmopressin for nocturia. That seems just scary to me. I mean, as someone who like we only mess with that if we're treating hyponatremia. Um, so des desmopressin is that something that your urologist colleagues are using for patients with really bad nocturia? Yeah. So if it's scary for you guys, it's really scary for us as urologists. <laughs> um, and so I think for that reason, we don't use it much, but um, it actually, I mean, if you look at the data, there's very convincing data and it's actually very effective, uh, as you mentioned, specifically for nocturia. Um, I think, as you mentioned, I mean, many urologists are uncomfortable. Uh, is this patient going to become profoundly hyponatremic? How often do I need to check electrolytes and that sort of thing? Um, so that kind of decreases its use. But they, they're coming out with, um, I believe there was just a, a nasal formulation of desmopressin that's been approved. And, and I think, don't quote me on this, but I, I think that may have a lower incidence of hyponatremia. So um, it, it certainly can be an effective therapy. Okay, audience, you at, at your own risk. Uh, you, you know, don't don't tell people that we told you to do that. Uh, gonna... <laughs> <laughs> or the prostate milking, as far as that goes. Don't do either of those things. After I say so. Yeah, urethra, milking the urethra. That's a thumbs up. But milking the prostate. Uh, don't tell anybody about that. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Maybe we should get take home points. Uh, th we got to thank Adam for all his time here. Adam, thank you. And and can you give us some take home points for the audience about BPH? Sure. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. Um, maybe take home point number one is is not all urinary symptoms are due to BPH. Um, so certainly, you know, in the right population, have BPH high in your differential. But think about other things. I mean, could this be overactive bladder? Um, if it's if we think there's obstruction, I mean, could this be a urethral stricture? Could this man have a bladder neck contracture? Is this a urinary tract infection? So you know, think about other things before you just uh, chalk the symptoms up to BPH. Um, I think PSA can be a very valuable tool. I know that's a, a controversial topic from the prostate cancer screening perspective, but I think when used appropriately, uh, you can get a lot of information from a PSA. So I would encourage people to use that and, and to try to educate themselves as best as possible on the uh, the, the pros and cons of, of PSA testing. Um, and I guess, you know, if ever in doubt, uh, you know, urologists are always happy to see these patients. So don't don't uh, feel hesitant to, to, you know, reach out to your urologist or refer the patient to the urology practice because this is kind of our our bread and butter. So, yeah. This is great. I definitely very useful. I I feel very comfortable with uh, all this information you've given us now. Kind of how to at least at least know where to start, and and you'll probably get better referrals from from at least people that listen to this show um, going forward. Well, good. We'll we'll have to publicize the show as best as we can. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Paul, you Adam, do you know? And this we can cut this out because I didn't. I, I doubt you prepped for this, but I, I was just, I'm trying to wonder because it's so prevalent in a certain patient population. And I feel like it's a, also a topic that people are a little bit hesitant to talk about. Is there any evidence for sort of screening um, for, for just lower urinary tract symptoms? So, you know, take PSA out of it, but just sort of asking at, you know, primary care visits or is there, you know, has USPSCF recommended that or is there recommendations from your own societies about just sort of screening every male between, say, 45 and whatever for lower urinary tract huh. symptoms? <clears throat> That's actually a really good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to it, um, but you could certainly make an argument for it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of guys are reluctant to bring these sorts of issues up. I mean, you know, they, I, I, I don't necessarily know why someone would be embarrassed about urinating frequently, but I, I, it may be something that if you specifically asked about it, somebody might offer it up, whereas whether they, you know, they wouldn't necessarily bring it up unprompted. Paul, another and another thing that I I might just add this into the to the intro or or cut it back in earlier is uh, when we were talking about PSA, did we get a cutoff value that or is there any way to correlate the PSA to you mentioned a prostate volume? So what's a normal volume and how does the relative PSA correlate to different volumes? Yeah, so that's that's a trickier question. I mean, the the volume thing is easier to answer. So I, I you know. I would say somewhere between 30 and 40 grams or 30 and 40 milliliters is um, is roughly average for a 60 to 65-year-old man. 
So anything bigger than that, you know, is certainly relatively large. And every, anything smaller than that, you start to think maybe less likely that these symptoms are due to BPH. Um, you know, PSA, I mentioned it's a, a surrogate measure for prostate volume. It certainly does not correlate perfectly. And PSA does tend to increase with age. But the way I think about it is for a man in his 50s, a median PSA would be about one. So if it's higher than one, potentially that would indicate a large prostate. Uh, In your 60s, your median PSA is maybe one to one and a half. And then in your 70s, maybe more like one and a half to two. So you can kind of use that as a rough estimate. And, and, you know, a PSA lower than that, you say, oh, well, maybe maybe the prostate's not that big. A PSA higher than that would argue in favor of BPH. Uh, But again, there are are many exceptions to this rule. So don't don't hang your hat on that. But it's just another kind of piece of data when you're when you're trying to, to piece the picture together. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, yeah. We, we we'd have to do a whole nother show to go down the the PSA rabbit hole. I think this yeah, was. I think, so. I think we we did a good job of making it pretty manageable with like just the tips you gave on the the free PSA stuff. So, awesome. Yeah. No problem. Thanks again for having me. And uh, yeah. Best of luck. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain whole. Yummy. There we go. It just feels empty without it at this point. (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please, subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. It really does help. Or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And a special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and goodbye. Goodbye.